Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. $500 billion is spent on prescription drugs every year. The question is, why do prescription drug out-of-pocket costs remain so high? The answer may surprise you, and a recent study by 3Axis Advisors set out to determine just how prices are being set. And what they found, the overwhelming majority of prices paid by consumers at the pharmacy counter are based on price points established by health insurance corporation intermediaries known as pharmacy benefit managers. My guest today is Antonio Chacha. He's president of 3Axis Advisors, who will explain the study and its implications. For everything about Antonio and his firm, go to three, that's the number three, threeaxisadvisors.com, and you can follow them on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And Antonio, welcome to the show. Great to be with you today. Thanks. So just before we start with the actual information, tell us a little bit about Three Axis Advisors and why you named it that, because that would not have been popular during World War II. <laughs> so... Um, uh, my background was in pharmacy. I was born and raised in a pharmacy household. My dad's a hospital pharmacist of about 40 years. My sister's a Walmart pharmacist of about a decade. I worked as a pharmacy technician for about three years and said I wanted to be just like them. Then I hit organic chemistry and said there's better things to do with my life uh, <laughs> in pharmacy. Uh, I switched over to journalism and political science. And um, shortly out of college, I found myself right back in pharmacy at that, that time working for the uh, Ohio Pharmacists Association, a trade association that represents pharmacists licensed in the state of Ohio. Within that time period, I was introduced to the wild world of drug pricing from a pharmacist perspective. And pharmacists, you know, they are clinicians, but primarily their compensation comes to the dispensing of medicines. And so when there's pressure put down on reimbursement for medicines, pharmacists as a profession will feel the pinch. Well, what I learned was that on the other end of the transaction is that when pharmacists were feeling the pinch, meaning that reimbursements were being cut, the people on the other end of the transaction weren't saving any money. And so what we found was that there was this growing gap that lived in between what pharmacists were paid for medicines and then what patients and payers, employers, Medicaid programs, et cetera, were being charged for those same medicines. We started, we started essentially went, and go, went down a journey of drug pricing journalism. I started a nonprofit organization in 2018 called 46 Brooklyn Research, which was intended to be sandbox time for drug pricing journalism. Uh, and something to annoy my wife between the hours of 9 p.m. and 12 a.m. Uh, after we launched that, it kind of took over uh, in a way that I didn't necessarily envision. And so it necessitated creating a side hustle uh, that I called Three Axis Advisors. The Three Axis machine was actually developed as a flying machine for the Wright brothers years ago when they were discovering you know, flight through a series of failures. And since we are in Ohio, as were the Wright brothers, uh, and Axis uh, obviously has a connotation around graphing, uh, which we dedicate a lot of our time visualizing drug pricing data. We kind of intersected all those things together, success through, through a series of failures, which anybody who's navigated trying to pay for drugs in an affordable way would know. It's going to be many failures along the way. Oh, yeah. But our firm, 
you know, we started in 2019. The side hustle became a full-time hustle just because of demand. And so today we do work with Medicaid fraud control units, state attorney generals, state auditors, Medicaid programs, employers, law firms, benefits consultants, and industry disruptors like transparent pharmacy benefit managers or groups like the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company. So that's who we are and how we came to be. So you're still, in a way, in the pharmacy world. You just couldn't get past that organic chemistry class. I, I, that was, um, I don't know if I would have been able to or not. I made the choice that I wasn't ready to find out. <laughs> I was interested <laughs> in other pursuits at that point. I would think you're indirectly helping your family as well, the ones that are actually pharmacists, <laughs> when, when they hear about what you do. There's no question that they find what I get to do very compelling since, you know, as pharmacists, they are clinicians. And so they're more focused on how the medicines work for a patient within their particular disease states. And usually you know, most pharmacists will tell you they're just passengers in the vehicle when it comes to the financing of drugs. They don't have a material impact. We could actually discuss that as part of our study, but pharmacists are just kind of, you know, ornaments on a larger tree. And so oftentimes pharmacists, through no fault of their own, just say they leave the pricing stuff to the side and they focus on what the drug actually does for that patient. Sure. Or interactions with other drugs as well. That's right. Tell us, before we get into the study, just for simpletons like me, how it works, you have a, a drug manufacturer who then gives it to this intermediary who then prices it in a certain way before it gets to the pharmacies. Is that roughly it? So... There are many layers in the proverbial layer cake of drug pricing, but from a big perspective, you have a drug manufacturer who sells a drug to a wholesaler. And so for those who may not know what a wholesaler is, think of them as like the warehouse for a lot of medicines. They're buying from multiple manufacturers, Pfizer, you know, AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then the, the wholesaler, which are companies that many people may not have heard of, but maybe you've seen their trucks on the highway, McKesson, Cardinal Health, Amerisource, Bergen, they are essentially the warehouse. And pharmacies buy their drugs from wholesalers, and then pharmacies sell those drugs out in the open market. Now, ninety over 90% of drug transactions in this country occur with a third-party intermediary, meaning that health insurance or a government program are buying those medicines. And typically they're buying their medicines through another vendor that they hired known as a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM. So from a product flow perspective, the physical product is made by the manufacturer, sold to a wholesaler who sells to a pharmacy and then gives it to a patient. That patient will pay some of their own money sometimes to pay for that medicine at the pharmacy counter, or they'll receive cost sharing or assistance from their PBM and health insurance company. Okay, so that's where they fit in on, in the chain. Is there another cost that is not included in your study? And what I mean by that is, you mentioned the manufacturer, or I mentioned manufacturer initially, and you obviously talk about it. What if the manufacturer is overseas? Isn't there an additional cost coming from the manufacturer to ship it to the United States? Without question, you know the manufacturer, when they're setting their prices, they're factoring in a slew of, of factors when setting the prices for those medicines. So let's say I was a, a manufacturer and I was, you know, located in, in, uh, Norway. Okay. 
I'm going to factor in the actual cost of physical production, the cost of, you know, paying rebates to Medicaid programs, paying rebates to the Department of Veterans Affairs, factoring in any sort of increased price I want to create because of, let's say, failed drugs that are in the pipeline or drugs that I'm trying to get over the finish line of other drugs in my portfolio that maybe haven't made it to market yet. And they'll factor in other things like transportation and things like that, payment amounts to drug wholesalers, et cetera. So there's a a big stew that is cooked when a manufacturer is factoring in how they want to set their prices. And some of that will be cost of importation. The study itself, why did you decide to embark on the study? And then how long did it take you to conduct the survey or study? And then were you surprised at the results of the study? I know that's a three-part question, so take any it's part. Okay. We are curious by nature. And what I mean by that is most people would assume that drug pricing is relatively straightforward. And I could tell you my perception when I entered, you know, a more sophisticated degree of research in this space. My perception was drug makers set the price and now we are all subject to that price, right? And so at the beginning of every year, brand drug manufacturers, that's usually when they take all their, a majority of their increases that will occur over the course of the year will occur in the month of January. And usually folks will see the headlines in January that, oh my goodness, hundreds of drugs went up in price and they went up by X amount percent. And the impulse reaction is, how dare those manufacturers, you know, do that again, right? And not to, you know, shift blame by any stretch, right? Certainly the manufacturer is creating our starting point experience. But if I'm being honest, you know, we're telling a very small portion of the story if it's brand manufacturer sets a price for a drug. There are other things that we have to consider from a system perspective. So as an example, what are brand drugs even? We in the United States allow brand companies to produce new medicines. And in exchange for the, or the, we want to incentivize them to bring new innovative products to market. And that incentive takes the form of a patent. We grant a patent to a drug manufacturer who brings something new and innovative to the market. Now we can debate whether or not it is of high quality relative to other drugs that are already in the market, et cetera. But the idea is, is if you're a manufacturer and you bring a new formulation or a new, new product to market, we're going to give you a patent. That patent gives them exclusivity that allows that manufacturer to set the price however they should choose, and they'll do so based upon what they can maximize in the marketplace or essentially what the market will bear. We can say that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's the structure that we have in the U.S. There's a catch, though. After a certain period of time, that exclusivity period lapses. And even though that manufacturer holds that patent, the recipe, if you will, of that drug is gifted to the marketplace where other manufacturers can produce generic or biosimilar versions mm-hmm. of that innovative product that ultimately will create competition where perhaps it didn't exist before. So from a system perspective, we rely on the incentives of patents for brand companies to continue to bring new innovative therapies to marketplace. Eventually, their exclusivity runs out. Generic manufacturers get the recipe for the drug. That competition between those manufacturers is meant to bring down the underlying cost of that drug such that the previous manufacturer who was making so much money off that brand product now loses their breadwinner. 
And if they want to continue to be profitable, they have to bring a new product to market. So if I'm telling a story about drug pricing at the beginning of the year and saying so-and-so raised their price for a drug, it's relevant, it's important, we need to track it, but it is important to view that experience of a drug price increase or a, a new drug launch price within a broader ecosystem where we're supposed to overpay for brand drugs because they eventually will become cheap generic drugs and then the circle continues. Right. But now the PBMs step in and somehow, based on your study, you found that that's where the pricing gets dicey because of the PBMs. It is. So what we did is we said, look, everybody complains about drug affordability and far be it for me to say they should or shouldn't. When I worked as a pharmacy technician, you know, up in Cleveland, Ohio for a regional grocery pharmacy, I'll never forget, I would see patients walk away from the pharmacy counter if they had a cost sharing of $5. So everybody has their own economic situation as individuals and far be it for any of us to, you know, opine as to what equals affordability because it will be very different for different people. But we talk about the prices of medicines, and usually when we talk about the prices of medicines, we do so with, you know, you know, anger because we know that broadly, or we think we know broadly, that medicines are unaffordable. Well, I don't live, I don't like living in aggregate stories. I love living in detail because the truth is there are many drugs that are insanely affordable relative to my perception, right? Mm -hmm. Drugs that, you know, from a cost perspective, are less than $10 a month all in. And then there's other drugs that are thousands of dollars per month. Or there are some drugs that are gene therapies that are a million dollars or $2 million for a one-time administration, but you never need it ever again. That's the idea. So again, without taking sides as to what is affordable and what isn't, what we asked was, well, usually when we talk about affordability, there's a number of constituents that we think about when we're concerned about what when medicines are affordable for them. What I mean is, what about the employers who are providing health benefits for their employees? The Medicare program that's providing benefits to seniors, Medicaid programs that are providing uh, coverage for the sick, the poor, the disabled, and a number of other programs, right? Usually, when politicians talk about affordability, they're talking about the patient, right? And so what we said to ourselves is, well, a lot of times the headlines of a drug price increase or a pharmacy price or whatever price leave out what's actually the patient experience. And so being pharmacy guys, we said, let's take a look at how prices are being set at the pharmacy counter so that when the patient actually walks up to the counter, who can we point the finger at to say, who created this price or how was that price derived? And what we found was that an overwhelming majority of the time, these intermediaries, these PBMs who work on behalf of health insurance companies, they were the ones creating the price at the pharmacy's point of sale, the one that's ultimately the experience of the pharmacy and the patient. So the question that we then asked is, are they doing so in a way that is aligned with the interests of the patient or the plan sponsor in mind? And in addition, Understanding that there's significant market concentration in the PBM marketplace, how might we see the prices that are being set by larger PBMs versus smaller? Or can we see how the price might be different from one pharmacy to another? And what we found that was that the PBMs are setting 
prices the same way that I would blindfold myself and throw darts at a dark board <laughs> because it, it makes no sense. Um, and so our report is very much in the weeds and it deals with very technical aspects of how we pay for medicines within a health insurance benefits. But it was meant to demonstrate that if we care about affordability from a patient perspective, we need to have a much better understanding on how these Fortune 15 PBMs are operating and how they're choosing to set the pricing experience at the pharmacy counter. Now, the people that would, I won't say benefit from the study, but will use the study, I assume would be state legislatures, national legislatures, uh, Senate and the House, Congress, in other words, in the United States, to set public policy. Would that be a fair assumption? I think it's impossible for us to divorce divorce the report from the larger, you know, scuttlebutt that's happening uh, in Washington D.C. right now. PBMs are are in, I was going to say enjoying, but they're probably not. But they are having their moment in the sun, if you will, within Congress and the Federal Trade Commission and state attorney generals across the country. And so, you know, certainly the report drops right in the middle of that backdrop. But if I'm being honest, you know. I certainly would intend for people that are serious about setting drug pricing policy from an affordability perspective, I would task them with better understanding what, what we're actually teaching them in these reports. But we also offer it as a way of helping patients better understand how the system works. Again, when I worked in pharmacy, you know, I didn't pay attention very much at the time, but I can tell you that I paid attention enough to say, it was a roll of the dice as to what patients were going to be charged for a particular medicine. Some, but the first patient would walk in zero dollars. Next one walks in five. Next one ten. Next one twenty. Next one fifty. And then you see hundreds of dollars. Right? Again, I wasn't sophisticated at the time, so I wasn't thinking about it clearly. I was in high school at the time. I had other things going on. But you know, it was it was just it was very fascinating to me looking back on how it just felt like the spin of a roulette wheel. Sort of like, our study, sort of, yeah, sort of like airline tickets. That's exact, that, that yeah. is exactly right, except at least with airline tickets, when you go online and you've, you get a quote for your flight, you will get it right then and there. And with drug pricing, it's absolutely not the case. One of the things that we saw within our study, to me it was the most fascinating thing some I think policymakers sometimes will gloss over this phenomenon. There's a drug called duloxetine. It's a very popular medicine. We see it. You know, employers are paying a lot of money for it. Patients are paying a lot of money for it. But it's a generic drug, which means there are multiple manufacturers that create different versions of that medicine. So what we did is we said, look, we understand that a PBM might like flexibility to pay different rates to different pharmacies or maybe pay different rates based upon which manufacturer's product is being purchased. That's not really how it works in practice, but we'll, you walk with me down the road sure. here. So what we said is let's take a single one, a, a unique identifier for a single prescription made by the same manufacturer, and let's see how the exact same PBM on the exact same day at the exact same pharmacy chose to price that drug. And what we found was because this drug is so popular, we found a pharmacy that dispensed over five different claims for this version of duloxetine on the same day for the same PBM made by the same manufacturer. 
and they set five different prices. The prices ranged from $9 and change per prescription all the way up to $96 per prescription. Amazing. So how is that possible when our perception of drug pricing is drug manufacturer sets a price or pharmacy sets a price, which they do. The question that I, I, I ask is, then how is the PBM creating five different prices on the same day at the same pharmacy for the exact same? Well, price? is there an answer to that? that I have not received one yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You raised the uh, question, but there's no answer yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I could tell you a simplified version that is going to be somewhat unfair, and I'll, I'll offer it in absence of getting a good explanation from the PBMs themselves, is this is profit maximization, right? This is they are running a casino. And so if we backtrack, all right, what we talk what we talked about at the front end, how the physical drug flows through the distribution channel, a drug manufacturer makes it, sells it to a wholesaler, sells it to a pharmacy, sells it to a patient. Those three layers I just mentioned, those are publicly traded companies for the most part from a market share perspective. We should trust that drug manufacturers want to charge as much as the market will bear. We should trust that they will sell to wholesalers who want to do the same thing. And we should trust that they will sell those drugs to pharmacies who will want to do the exact same thing. The health insurance company and the PBM were brought in to act as a necessary friction against the incentives of that one end of the drug supply chain who left to its own devices would love to mark up the drugs as much as they could get away with. But that's not what's happening. Over time, health insurance companies and PBMs have actually vertically integrated. And now they start making money off the very transactions they were hired to control. And so they make whatever money they can by maximizing the same allowances that the old drug supply chain members used to. And we offer this study, you know, not as a way to say, hey, it's all the PBM's fault, right? Because at the end of the day, the PBM experience will, the prices that the PBM sets will often be less than what the manufacturer charge or what the pharmacy chose to charge. But in my experience, those sticker prices charged by manufacturers and pharmacies are aspirationally characterized at best, meaning they set bogus inflated prices, understanding that that will be the starting point for their compensation. And so drug manufacturers overprice medicines relative to what their net prices are. Same thing with pharmacies, because PBMs will ultimately negotiate a lesser rate off that starting point. So we should trust the PBM at that point to be a good negotiator on our behalf and to ensure that whatever savings they render, they push back to the patients and plan sponsors. Instead, it's a series of them trying to maximize what they can get away with, charging differential rates based upon what their marketplace will bear. And so it begs the question, who's holding the, the middleman accountable um, in the, when it comes to setting these prices? And is that do you see it from your perspective that that's going to be a function of government? Because middlemen always get the the negative attention over the over the centuries, but middlemen are essential to an economy, especially a free enterprise economy. In this case, there seems to be some abuse, allegedly. And so are you recommending perhaps some governmental intervention through legislatures, either state or national, to deal with it? Well, I could tell you what's necessary before we get, you know, our hands too dirty in trying to, you know, over-regulate a marketplace, right? right? Which, you know, I've certainly seen, you know, cut in the, in the wrong direction as well. To me, the drug industry is, is dysfunctional and unique from a number of perspectives. 
in the old days, we used to take a rational approach to the pricing of medicines, and it's just really evolved away from that. Years ago, PBMs and insurance companies, along with drug makers, got an exemption to federal anti-kickback laws. Ronald Reagan signed anti-kickback laws in 1987. The drug industry and the drug supply chain got exemptions in the 90s. That allowed for them to engage in pay-to-play, where all of a sudden competition doesn't lower prices, it actually inflates them. And so as a result, we're stuck with a system of bogus inflated prices in the United States that are not born out of traditional uh, competition. You add to the fact that we're talking about life-saving drugs, and we as consumers are kind of stuck. So one of the things that that we advocate for is maximum amounts of transparency, in fact, uncomfortable degrees of transparency from a business perspective, such that the employer and the patient can have better information with which to navigate a, a very convoluted and opaque system. And we also believe that the special exemptions made to anti-kickback laws aren't worth the trouble that, that they're currently presenting in the marketplace. Two questions before I let you go. One is, how long did the study take to do? I think I asked that earlier, and I always remember a question I asked that was not yet answered. <laughs> so how long did the study take to do? study took us about six months. We had over a 1,000 pharmacies who participated who voluntarily handed over all their reimbursement and drug pricing data for the purposes of us being able to analyze their experience such that we could create these findings. And it was sponsored by an organization called the American Pharmacy Cooperative Incorporated. This is a pharmacy co- an independent pharmacy cooperative based out of Alabama, who, you know, obviously from an independent pharmacist perspective, I think they have an ax to grind with the way that they're treated in the system as well. And is this study available on your website? That is correct. So the entire study, if you're if you uh, if you're well caffeinated and you have the stomach, it's 88 <laughs> pages, and, and it's over at uh, the number threeaxisadvisors.com. Right. <laughs> three axis, <laughs> threeaxisadvisors.com. A last question for you before I let you go: What would be if you looked at the study in its totality and you look at the reality of what's going on in the American pharmaceutical world? What would be your ultimate recommendation or suggestion for improvement or change? Uh, I do think that we need to anti, uh, we need to repeal those anti-kickback, uh, those, those anti-kickback exemptions that were given to the drug channel. Again, they, they result in an environment where competition inflates prices rather than uh, lowers them. And in the system, it's so, it's so weird. You know, these kickbacks, they, they walk and talk like rebates. If you and I were to wa- uh, go buy a, a dishwasher at the, at the local, uh, local hardware store or department store, you know, we'd see a thousand dollar price tag and then there'd be a hundred dollar rebate associated with that. We, as the ones purchasing that, that dishwasher would be the ones getting that hundred dollar rebate. That's not how it works in the drug channel. We as patients overpay and generate rebates that are then harvested by intermediaries like PBMs and health insurance companies. I promise this actually will be the last question. I thought I was done, but I had one more question. What's the reaction been so far to the study? Uh, shock and awe would be the best way that I can describe it. Uh, because, you know, I think a lot of people assume, yes, PBMs are going to have a role in, in creating the prices that we pay. Obviously, that's their, that's by design. If manufacturers and pharmacies are setting inflated prices and the PBM aims to negotiate that from them, of course, the PBM will have an impact on the price. But in Capitol Hill, PBMs are saying drug manufacturers and drug manufacturers alone set prices. It's just not true, right? Uh, everybody has a hand in, se- in setting the experience that we have as consumers when we buy our medicines. I think people assume that, yes, PBMs had a role, 
they certainly didn't assume that they that they would price the same medicine on the same day five different ways at the same pharmacy. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Antonio Chancha. He's president of Three Axis Advisors. So for everything about Antonio and his firm and the study, you go to Three Axis. That's three, the number three. Three Axis Advisors. A X I S. Three Axis Advisors dot com, and you can follow them on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And Antonio, thanks for being on the show. Ira, great, great to have the conversation. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.